Hello everyone and welcome to the Better World series of interviews sponsored by CCLA. Their brief to us was a simple one. Go and have some interesting conversations with interesting people about ideas that might help the net zero journey. First up is Jake Fines, Director of Conservation at the Holcomb Estate on the North Norfolk coast and author of Land Healer. Jake's work on the Holcomb Estate has earned him a reputation for radical habitat restoration and agricultural work and for bringing back wetlands, hedgerows, birds and butterflies across 25,000 acres of land. Jake, uh, a very warm welcome to the Better World series. Tell us what you and your team are doing in Holcomb and how it's impacting biodiversity. I was appointed uh, to work at Holcomb in, uh, in November 2018. Uh, so I've been here for three and a half years. Uh, first six months for induction. Then your first year isn't your year. So actually, when you really start making a difference, I've only been doing it for two years. Uh, so the Holcomb Estate has Section 35 approved body status to manage the natural asset that is the Holcomb National Nature Reserve. This has multiple designations, SSSI, SAC, SPA, Ramsar, Nantra 2000, and is an area of outstanding national beauty visited by over a million people annually. It's rich in nature when I arrived and we've just made it richer. We've looked at nature-based solutions. We've continually monitored and managed any changes in management and to understand the differences they make to the natural world. And in two years, we brought our lapwing populations back to what they were 20 years ago. We've doubled, so Holcomb has the largest breeding colony of spoonbills, and we've doubled that population. We've seen increase in general flora and fauna abundance, and that's just the nature reserve, but actually a huge chunk of Holcomb is farmland. It's home, it's, it's home to the agricultural revolution of over 200 years ago with the second earl encouraging people to discuss better and more sustainable agriculture we're implementing that in a more 21st century style uh, so we're looking at regenerative sustainable environmental agriculture encouraging biodiversity back to our fields while still producing high quality high yielding commodities Thanks, Jake. We, we know that agriculture is one of the more carbon intensive sectors and that any net zero solution is likely to demand widespread changes to the way we farm. Uh, are you seeing any encouragement beyond what you're doing in Holcomb, any encouragement developments in farming practices in the UK or beyond? Do you see, do you see enough of that going on? Uh, it's never enough till it's at 100%. But am I, seeing, am I seeing hope? Am I seeing a new ways that farmers and land occupiers are choosing to produce food for an ever-growing population? Yes. And I see this in Australia, South America, North America, and the UK. So the, the catchphrase is regenerative agriculture. Those are some key principles that you adhere to. So minimal soil disturbance, reduce inputs, i.e. artificial fertilizers and pesticides looking at nature-based solutions, so understanding soil health and how we can mimic our food production systems in a natural way that doesn't impact on yield. And there's some really encouraging results globally. There's some people doing some amazing stuff out there. Uh, and the key thing is nuance and context, because what I do on the North Norfolk coast is completely different to what someone in uh, in North Dakota in North America would do, uh, and even someone in South Australia. So it's understanding systems and na nature-based solutions that work for your farm, that don't impact your yields, but actually uh, are more sustainable and long-term 
have wider, wider benefits to the environment. It sounds pretty straightforward when you put it like that, but it must be hugely challenging de- depending on the type of land that you manage. The challenge is that we've all been, we've all participated in a system that was very convenient. It was short rotation. It was going straight to the fertilizer bag or the chemical can, thinking that I could, uh, this was an easy, cheap way of producing high volume food. Uh, the reality is it's now having an impact. And the natural world is um, has an amazing resilience when it wants to be. So some of the systems that we have implemented in the last 50 years of food production are actually becoming less reliant on the artificial inputs, but actually are being challenged by nature. So we're looking at increased disease thresholds. We're looking at increased pest thresholds. We have varieties of soft commodities that aren't resilient to climate change. Where we see drought and prolonged rain, we see increasing fungicides. We see crops that actually, without taking up the artificial nutrients, because fundamentally they were bred to complement one another, are actually this is a flawed this is a flawed food production system. We are evolving, and uh, it's definitely feels like it's an evolution as opposed to a revolution in agriculture. And it will take change, and it will take time. But the global climate change clock is ticking. And we need to, we need the support from governments, we need the support from global investment to understand this is something that we need to address within the next seven years. You know, I was speaking at COP26, there was a lot of pledges, but the reality is uh, we only have about six years to start implementation of this. Okay, I want to come to government support a bit later, but let's turn to demographics. Uh, With roughly 10 billion people Uh, estimated to require food and water by 2050. Do you believe the work that you're doing on the Holcomb Estate is scalable and that major food producers can contribute to the net zero challenge in a regenerative and in a sustainable way? I believe that the practices that we have implemented at Holcomb are replicable globally. The challenge is with 570 million farm businesses globally and 500 million of those under two hectares and 60% of those businesses at risk with uh, global temperatures at 1.5, 60% of those businesses are unviable. So the challenges for those of us in temperate climates is to produce more food for an ever-growing population. But we have to do this that has less of a requirement for natural resources, can actually complement the wider environment without reducing reducing our, our ability to produce quantity. You know, the big challenge, uh, the big challenge is it, it fundamentally is about waste reduction. We can supply sufficient food for that quantity of people. We just need to reduce the waste. How do we do that? So the waste, the waste starts right from uh, the, the primary producer looking for uh, the perfect crop with the perfect shape and the perfect yield. Right. We need to be more relaxed about that. We need to have you know, imperfections in our food that actually still provide us with nutritious requirements. You know, immediately, you, you reduce the amount of wastage. You know, you, you, if you take the average uh, a standard root vegetable like a parsnip, the supermarkets want a parsnip of a particular size uh, and weight to meet their packaging and their shelving uh, requirements. Actually, the reality in the field is actually you get multiple sizes. Anything up to 90% of parsnips in field actually don't meet human consumption. 90%. 
So that's not that's not just about the producer, is it, Jay? That's us, the consumer, being a bit too picky when we go into the supermarket. I'm of the belief that it's not about the consumer. The consumer will fundamentally, if we look at the last two years and the challenges of providing food on our shelf, and we started to sh see shelves with less food, we still purchase the food that we saw. So if all of the food, because we've grown it into this global consumer society where everything must be as we want it presented rather than what is offered. And if, you know, the days of the days of my childhood of going into a greengrocer's and actually everything was in loose packaging and you would pick your fruit and vegetables as, as and when you required and you'd take them to the counter in a paper bag and they were weighed. And, and that's how we historically effectively uh, retail foraging, let's call it. And that's that's what we were used to. But we've just changed into this society where everything's wrapped in cellophane. Everything, every chicken weighs exactly the same weight. Every potato, every potato, and every banana meets a particular size requirement. We've become fundamentally, as consumers, we've become lazy. But I think it's not the role of the consumers to radically change and challenge what they are being provided. It's actually down to the food supply chains to offer them a, a, a different selection. Okay, and so why aren't they doing that? Because I'm, I'm sure they would argue, if they were here today, they would argue that they're driven by uh, consumer demand. What, what is it that needs changing in, in the system for them to be more relaxed about it? I think they created the perception of the demand. It wasn't the consumer. The consumer, as it evolved and as everything was sat in these immaculate shelves and fresh vegetables were there and were used by dates and sell by dates, that was, that was the food providers that created that system. And they're the ones that need to change that. And when we see when we see some of the issues, and you know, I think um, that Harvest 23 is probably a biggest challenge than 22. And we see the impacts of conflict on our food production systems. Actually, that's when the large growers and the providers of the ag and the big agri businesses and the big global food sector will need to change change the way they have historically operated in the last 40 years. So, Jake, the focus of investor attention, and we're here today to talk to an audience of, of large global institutional investors, their attention towards climate change is starting to shift towards this recognition that loss of biodiversity is a big, big problem, not just environmentally, but economically too. I guess you welcome this interest, but how do you think investors, starting from a blank sheet of paper, can get involved in this area in a meaningful way and, and, and at scale? So I definitely feel that global investment feels that there is pressure for CSR, ESG, whatever you, you know. And so the earlier adopters are, are looking at, uh, have moved into carbon markets and carbon markets have been slightly challenged because fundamentally the science is not reliable. Um, we then recognize that there is a huge case for biodiversity loss. So biodiversity and landscape value is something that we uh, we have historically never valued and the biggest challenge is putting a price on biodiversity in all of the large uh, the you know the, some of the businesses that I've had conversations with so the coca-colas the googles the facebooks the visas some of the large water companies are actually starting to recognize that if there is a catastrophic decline in biodiversity fundamentally 
that affects your bottom line beyond belief. And actually, the money the money required uh, globally is quite pales into insignificance when you think of the money that we spend on defence and the money that we spend on COVID track and trace. You know, if we look at the UK agriculture requiring a support mechanism of 1.7 billion that's quite small amounts of money i've just done a deal with a with a, a corporate where they were happy to invest in natural world or environmental services and the amount of money was uh, was was less than their annual marketing budget and actually then they're starting to realize that that investment actually if they are a business that is sustainable and recognizes the importance of investing into the natural world for the good of their business and for the benefit of their customer base it actually it's not it's not as painful as uh, some might wish and we look at some of the basic the profit of the basis points that some of the global pension funds make you know there's a dutch pension company that makes annual profits that makes the 1.7 billion for uk agriculture uh seem like a small change uh so it's not and it it will evolve and people will start to, it's how you sell the story to those investors. You know, we can invest in large scale rewilding. We can invest in land use change. But actually, if we invest into sustainable agriculture that is good to provide to provide healthy, nutritious food, which then improves the quality of our labor force, it's actually everyone starts to benefit. And it's until we have that recognition and we have a global consensus on how we produce our food and ensuring that we make space for nature and we are, are less reliant on artificial impacts or inputs, then, then there is a steady culture of change. What we need is some great examples out there across continents globally that actually can start to pave a way and a solution going forward. If investors such as pension funds have a role to play in this, and I think, you know, all of us with a, a little pension pot would like to see our money put to, to, to better use than it has been uh, previously. They can't do this, going back to one of your earlier points, without government support, without policy and without incentives. Uh, are you optimistic that, that government is able to meet this challenge from a, from a policy point of view? Is it interested enough? Has it got the will? Does it have the champions to do it? I think our political leaders need to catch up. You know, definitely global business is more interested and they need policies that actually allow this investment to flow freely through markets. We're too driven by GDPR and actually we must be driven by long-term long sustainability. You know, if I've seen, seen some of the, the rhetoric and some of the articles coming out over the last sort of six months, are really starting to, um, you know, COVID and uh, conflict pale into insignificant with climate change. Climate change is something that is really happening. And we have this ability, unless we are all unified, and unless politicians across the world can agree, and they come together at these global conventions, and they pledge that they actually need to start making a difference. And we see that the COP27 that's going to happen in Sham El Sheikh in the autumn, where agriculture will be the will be a considerable focus in this. So I think these are, you know, time for less talk, more action is really important. So what do you want to see come out of COP27 specifically, Jake, that's going to help move us forward? We want to see the colour of the money. You know, there's less talk about putting out, you know, the, the billions of pounds here, the billions of pounds there that have been pledged in Rio, Paris and Glasgow that have never actually materialised. There's a recognition, there needs to be a recognition for the wealthier countries globally to 
recognize that, that their impacts are some of the poorer countries in the world and the challenges that they have because they're the ones that are going to be impacted in the first instance. We need a coming together. We need a we need an understand we need an understanding that is happening. We need to, you know, the radical change to move a global community that is addicted to fossil fuels and how we change that addiction and how we move forward. And it's the investment into that that is fundamentally important. Jay Fines, Director of Conservation at the Holcomb Estate and author of Land Healer, thank you for joining Net Zero Investors' Better World series of interviews sponsored by CCLA. We wish you all the very best for the future. Thanks, Jake. Thank you.